global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. From Bloomberg World Headquarters, I'm Catherine Cowdery. Commodity producers and lenders led U.S. stocks lower after comments from Bank of England Governor Mark Carney rekindled concerns that Britain's withdrawal from the European Union will further weigh on tepid global growth. Energy and financial shares were among the biggest losers, with investors showing a preference for havens. Equity declines and higher volatility reflected some of the anxiety seen during the two-day sell-off following the Brexit vote. We check the markets every 15 minutes. Dow Industrial Average down 109.6 tenths of a percent. It closed at 17,840, narrowing earlier losses. S&P 500 down 14.2 thirds of a percent to 2,088. The Nasdaq fell 40.78 of a percent to 48.22. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil down $2.19 a barrel, 4.5% to 46.81. Spot Gold up $19.70 an ounce to 13.58.70. And the 10-year Treasury up 20, 30 seconds with a yield of 1.37%. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. You're listening to Taking Stock with Kathleen Hayes and Pim Fox on Bloomberg Radio. As we celebrated the 4th of July weekend, many of us lauded, uh, appreciated our class-free society where liberty and hard work are meant to ensure real social mobility. Our next guest is here to tell us, well, not so fast. Class is a much bigger issue, not only in the history of the United States and our democracy, but also alive and well in our political system as two presumptive candidates vie for the White, uh, excuse me, the White House, yes, in November. The new book that Nancy is Eisenberg has written is White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. She's an author, a professor of American history at Louisiana State University. And Nancy, because I want to get right to the book, I'm not going to give them all your other credits and accomplishments. But White Trash, who is White Trash and where does this, where does this question of what role this group plays come in to American history? Well, first of all, if we think of the word white trash, we know it was first in newspaper print in the 1820s, but it has a much longer history. And what I began to explore is that it goes all the way back to British colonization, because from the very first, and this is one of the points I make, is we imagine at the time of the revolution, we escaped the class system, we broke free from Great Britain, but we didn't break free from the ideas about class and poverty. So the British, when they imagined colonization, they thought of the new world, not as a city upon the hill, but as a large trash heap, a dumping ground where they could unload the idle poor. And the people who actually came to the new world were not, if we think of the Puritans and seeking the majority, seeking religious liberty, most of them were coming for economic reasons. So not only did we have the rise of slavery, which we know was a form of unfree labor, but we had large numbers of convicts. Laborers, we had indentured servants, we had Irish rebels, we had the children of beggars. And that's when I think, I think one of the most disturbing things when we go back and realize how children, particularly young boys, were the major form of labor to be exploited. And most of these people were with an indentured contract. It could go anywhere from seven to nine years. And if you think about the horrible conditions in Virginia, at that time, most people would not even live to adulthood. So we have to imagine that from the very beginning, white trash goes back to the term that was used by British colonization, waste people. And for Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, Abigail Adams, their word of choice was rubbish. 
So one of the things I've paid attention to is the taxonomy, the language, and how each generation creates a set of terms to talk about the poor and to talk about how the poor are seen as trapped in this class, trapped in this class. And that unfortunately leads us to the idea that if they're trapped, we can't really help them. Charity is pointless. And we have to realize that it's also connected to our rural history, that for over half of our history, we were an agrarian nation. And the language of class was also Mm -hmm. tied to land. You talk about it being one giant workhouse. That's your description of the United States at uh, its founding. Right, because at the time, if we think about the 1500s, when one of the key figures I talk about is Richard Hacklett, who was the foremost foremost promoter of British colonization. He wrote the pitch to Queen Elizabeth. He's the one who said that this is the destiny. England has to get in the business along with the Spanish and the Dutch and think about colonization. But when if we look carefully on, on what's going on in Great Britain at this time, this is when they're beginning to establish workhouses. This is where they're beginning to think of how where are we going to put the poor? Um, and even we could take it back to the 1400s where the British had already waged a long standing war against the poor. Well, you would think then if in, in essence, these indentured white, uh, you know, Caucasian European indentured servants were slaves, in effect. You would think that freed slaves after the Civil War, that these two groups would have had a natural affinity, but in fact they didn't. Is it your argument in, in to a sense that they were pitted against each other and that has led to a lot of the class and racial issues we have today? It goes both ways. I mean, if you look at the antebellum South, for example, poor whites and slaves created an underground system of trade, uh, which subverted the power of the planter elite. Um, and well into the 20th century, they would live side by side and they would have relationships. But where they are pitted against each other comes out of politics. And I focus a lot, particularly if we look at uh, the way in which the Confederacy itself said that, well, non-slaveholders and the poor are going to you know, be willing to fight for the Confederacy because if they don't, they're going to drop down to the level of free blacks. So they use that as a taunt. They use that as a threat. That gets revived again during Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and well into the early 20th century. I want, I'm glad you bring us to the tw- early 20th century because you also mentioned a very famous Supreme Court case, Buck versus Bell. I just want to give you about 30 seconds to tell us why that's relevant. Why that's relevant is that one of the other key themes, if I said land is important and waste people were the landless, the other important theme is breeding. And this comes from animal husbandry, and it also lays the foundation for eugenics. And, in fact, what we have forgotten about Buck v. Bell is that Kerry Buck was selected as a candidate for sterilization, which was part of the eugenics movement. In 1931, 21 states had sterilization laws on the book. She was selected because she was seen as a perfect specimen of white trash. Um, and there, this group, particularly women, poor white women, were seen as a group. They first said we should put them in asylums during their fertile years, but it was cheaper to have them sterilized and then return them to the labor force as, as menial workers. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and congratulations on your new book, Nancy Eisenberg, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. This is Bloomberg. 
Coming up, Bloomberg Law brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, seeing what others have seen but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption for the top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.